Welcome to the podcast of Destiny Community Church. And today we begin a new three-part sermon series called People, Places, and Things. People, Places, and Things. And throughout this series, I want to show you how God uses these things to lead you into his plan for your life. These things matter. The people, the places, and the things that God puts in your life, they lead you to the plan that he has for your life. And I believe that we often overlook the significance of the people, the places, and the things that God puts in our path. And and we don't understand the the significance of each one of those things. What would it be like if we started recognizing the divine appointments that God has placed in our lives? What if we realize that he has us in a particular place for a purpose? And and what if we view the material things that God has blessed us with as tools for his kingdom? That's a mental shift. And, And if we could begin thinking that way, I believe God is going to lead us into his plan for our lives. Because God uses people, God uses places, and God uses things to move us towards him. I would prefer to fly over driving any day. Anybody else in the room, if you can get there by flying, you would rather fly than drive? There's some of us. Um, if, if, if I can get there faster by flying, I, I, just, I would rather do that. I don't, I don't necessarily like to drive long distances. And with our daughter going to school uh, up in Tennessee, there's, there's been some, some blessings. We found this airline uh, called Allegiant. And um, they're not paying me to say this today. I just thought about that. Maybe I, I should get them to say it. But Allegiant Airlines is, is such a bargain deal for us. And if we find them at the right time, um, you have to understand my daughter will not drive through Atlanta to come home. And so when it's time for her to come home for, for the holidays or, or even at the end of the year, um, I would prefer flying up there. And so I'll fly up to Chattanooga. She'll pick me up at the airport. And then her and I, we will just hit the interstate and I'll drive her car right through Atlanta and we'll come on home. That's how we do it for the holidays. And, and even sometimes the, the, uh, coming up here in the next couple of months, she's going to be coming home to visit for a weekend. And, and sometimes we can find these airfares really cheap. It's like 35, 40 bucks one way. And, and I mean, that's taxes and everything. And so th- that has been a blessing for my life because that seven hour drive gets old after a while. And so if I can get there by flying, I would much rather prefer that if I can bring her home rather than having to drive up there. If I can fly her home, I prefer that. But when I'm flying, I like to listen to music in my headphones. Anybody else when you're traveling, you like to do that? Now listen, if, if you're traveling in like, in like your, your minivan and the family's talking and you put your headphones in, that's just rude, okay? I'm talking about when you're like going through the airports and that kind of thing. When you're sitting on a plane, I like to, to listen to music. And usually I'll put my, my headphones in my ears, usually while I'm still sitting there waiting in the terminal, waiting on the, the plane to arrive. And, uh, and then I'll turn it down to listen to any of the announcements or anything just to make sure there's not a gate change or when they call my zone for me to board and stuff like that. But I don't take them out. And I'll, I'll go right on into the, into the plane and I'll, I'll put my stuff, I'll safely stow my stuff away over the overhead compartment or under the seat in front of me. And, um, and then I, I sit there with my headphones in my ears. And even if I'm, I'm, if I'm not listening to music, I leave the headphones in my ears. And the reason why is because you never know who's going to show up and sit next to you. You ever met somebody that all they do is talk? Don't point at them if they're in the room. Men, do not point at your wife right now. I'm, I'm helping you. 
You ever met somebody that, that they just talk a lot? Well, you never know who is going to be sitting next to you. And, and you've got to use wisdom in this because if, if you are sitting there with no headphones in your ears or on your ears, if you're not careful, you're going to be engaged in a conversation. And if it's a long flight, oh, Lord, that can be a nightmare as you sit there and you listen to somebody talk about their job. They'll talk about their children. They'll talk about their pets. They'll talk about their politics. I can care less. I don't want to hear all that. And for the entire flight. So if it's a long flight, you've messed up by not having your earbuds in your ears or your headphones on your ears soon enough because you have to pace yourself on a flight. Don't initiate the conversation too soon. Write that down. That's good for some of you travelers out there. Don't initiate the conversation too soon. You don't have to be rude about it, but if the headphones are in your ears before they get there, then you're not being rude. You're already engaged and listening to the music. For all they know, you, it just calms your nerves during takeoff, okay? But then just don't take them out. Just leave them in. And, and you wait just for the right moment because if that person is a conversational pro, they will talk your ears off. So you got to wait for the right moment. Towards the end of the flight, that's the safe time to take your, your, your headphones off and engage in some conversation. But be careful of that, too. I'm giving some great travel tips today. Now, I'm not a nervous flyer. I'm just not. I don't worry about the plane going down. I really don't. If the plane's going down, it, it's going to be over like that. So it doesn't, it doesn't really scare me. And, uh, you know, my biggest concern would be my family when I'm gone. But I've said it many times. I've said it from this pulpit before many times. My family's better off financially without me. I mean, so... So if, if, I, if I die today, somebody question her, okay? I, no, I, I just don't worry about that kind of stuff. When I'm flying, it just, you know, if the wings fall off, the wings fall off. I mean, that's just, it just happens and it'll be over soon enough. I just, that's, that's the way I feel about it. My wife, um, when we were preparing to fly to Israel, my wife had some concerns. And, and one of the things that she told me that, that she was concerned about was flying over the Atlantic Ocean. This was not on her list of things to do. She did not want to do this. And, and so she told me, she says, I'm just, that just freaks me out a little bit. I don't like flying over the Atlantic Ocean. And I said, why? Well, you know, what, what's the big deal? She said, well, you know, it's just, it's just a long way and you're, you're a long way from land and that kind of stuff. And, and I said, Mandy, you do realize that we have flown over bodies of water before. You understand that every time we went to Central and South America on mission trips, we fly right over the Gulf of Mexico. You understand that, right? She was like, yeah, but this is different. I said, how is this different? And she said, well, the Atlantic Ocean is, is like bigger and it's deeper. And I literally laughed out loud at her because I was like, Mandy, it doesn't matter. In a plane that size, it doesn't matter if you crash in the Atlantic Ocean or Lake Alice. You're dead. You're done, you know. It doesn't matter. Nobody is swimming for safety if that plane goes down over land, water, no matter what it is. It, it's, it's just it's not going to happen. But I do have, have this one concern. and It usually hits me as I'm sitting there on the plane. As, as I'm sitting on the plane with my headphones in my ears because I don't want to talk to anybody, as I'm sitting there and they start going over the pre-flight instructions, the flight attendant is talking in the intercom and, and they usually say something al along these lines. They, they'll, they'll, they'll say, please turn off all personal electronic devices, including laptops, iPods, and cell phones. You ever heard that announcement on a, on a plane? A every flight they say this. And some people may try and convince you that this is not that important. However, 
I have yet to fly and not hear that announcement be made. And so if it's not important, why do they say it at the beginning uh, and the end of every flight? And so I started doing some research on, on why. why. Why is this a big deal? Why is this so important that they would say this every flight? And I actually found two reports that, that happened in the 90s where people were on their phones and, and somehow it caused static in the headphones and, and messed with some navigational gear. And there were actually two confirmed flights that went down because of people using their cell phones. Okay, you weren't freaked out until now. Now you're like, what? What's happening? And so this concerns, am I the only one in the room that gets concerned with the fact that the airlines leave it up to the passengers to turn off their mobile devices, yet they announce it every flight? I feel like somebody needs to be walking the aisles of the plane, making sure everybody's turned their cell phones off or at least put it on airplane mode. And if you can't prove that, then they take your cell phone away from you. And everybody has a cell phone, so don't think you're going to sit on it and hide it either, okay? Because everybody has one, and I want to make sure that everybody's turning their cell phone off. And so flight after flight, they request that you turn off your portable electronic devices during liftoff and during landing. And if it's important enough to say it before every flight and at the end of every flight, then they need to make sure that people do it. That's my, that's my theory, and I'm not okay with the honor system on this, okay? Not okay with the honor system at all. And so last year, last summer, I was flying home from Denver, Colorado. I was ready to get home. I'd been out there for a number of days. I was ready to see Mandy, ready to get home. And, and I'm flying home, and, and we, we've made it to where we are circling Orlando. We are waiting our turn to land. And as we are, are circling Orlando, the girl sitting in front of me, the young lady sitting in front of me, decides that she's going to turn her cell phone on. Now, we're still in the air. She's going to turn on her cell phone, and she's going to take it off of airplane mode. And she decided it was time to Snapchat. I know this because if you're going to turn on your, 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 your cell phone, and in mid-flight, you're sitting right in front of me mid-flight, you're going to start making duck faces at the camera and, and, and posing all pretty and all that stuff. And, and then I'm going to lean up, and I'm going to see who you're sending it to. So obviously, she was sending it to her boyfriend. If it wasn't her boyfriend... He's going to be mad when he finds out. But, but she, was, she was definitely doing some heavy flirting with whoever was on the other end of this. And, and I'm concerned about it because I don't want to go down because you want to be all cute in your pictures and everything. That's just, and, and I, I just, that, that concerns me. It bothers me. Um, I quickly get over it because if you're like me, and, and most of you are, I think everybody in the room, if, if you've flown before, you've done this. Whenever you land, when the, when the tires finally hit the ground, the first thing that you do is turn on your cell phone. You don't wait till you taxi up the runway and find the right terminal to park at. No, I can care less about that. If we're already on the ground, let the wings fall off as we're going. I don't care about that because now I'm on the ground. And if, if, if the pilot can't drive that plane from, from one runway and find the right terminal, he doesn't need to be flying anyway. Even if my cell phone is causing interference in his ears. I just, and so I, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with those people that want to turn their cell phones on, you know, start checking email. You got to connect with the world again. You got to find out what you've missed, you know? So you start checking your text messages, your email, you go on social media, find out what's happening, make sure no major news events have taken place while you've been up, up in the air. No problem with that at all. But we miss out sometimes on the simple little things like, like a, a cell phone. Because at the moment you power that cell phone on, there's this chip in your cell phone. In some of your phones, it's called a SIM card. 
But, but there's this, this chip in your phone that as soon as you power up, it begins connecting with some cell tower somewhere. And then it connects you with a network. And that phone will not perform to its design capabilities unless it is connected to a network. And church, I'll tell you that we are designed the exact same way. We are designed in a way that in order for us to operate at our full God-given capacity, we too must be in network with others. Now listen to me. There's people in this room. Listen to me. I know, I know who you are. You show up for Sunday service and you leave as soon as it's over. This is about to slap you upside the face, okay? I love you, I love you, but I'm wanting you to know God designed us in a way that we must be in network and connectivity with God's people. And my job today is to prove that to you. So I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to start reading verses 7 and 8, and then I'm going to go down and read verses 15 through 20. So Genesis 2, verses 7 and 8, then 15 through 20. I'm going to start reading at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living, a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. I'll go down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. I can picture this, this scene in my mind where God takes probably a few days, if not weeks or even months, to bring each animal in front of Adam. And whatever Adam decides to call that animal, the Bible tells us that that was its permanent name. That Adam gives the name to each and every animal, and, and that became its name. God didn't say, Adam, I want you to bring the animals before, before, or before us, and, and then you pick a name, and if you don't like it, I have the power to veto that. That's not what it says. It says that Adam had the ability and the power to name each one of those animals, and whatever the animal was called, that was its name. And so I picture about halfway through this job, God's second-guessing his decision to allow Adam to name the animals. Think about it. Think about that moment when this big, round, low center of gravity beast comes before Adam. And he looks at it, and he thinks for a moment, and God's just there, just waiting and Adam says, hippopotamus. <laughs> and God's like, are you sure? <laughs> yes, 
we'll call it hippo for short. Okay, Adam. Okay. Think about this one. Platypus. <laughs> what is that? What, what kind of word is that even? And, and Adam says platypus, and God's like, oh, yeah, I can see God rolling his eyes, just like, what have I done? And by the time that, that God brings this, this little small creature, and, and it has absolutely no hair on it, and by the time Adam looks at this thing and he says, listen, God, I've got the perfect name for this one. It's a neck and mole rat. That is a neck and mole rat. Look at it, God. Look, tell me it's not. That's a neck and mole rat. And at that moment, I believe, is the moment where God said, I've got to find a helper that is suitable for this guy. I've got to find a helper to help this guy. Because if he goes through life making decisions like hippopotamus, platypus, and neck and mole rat, we're, we're going to be in trouble. This guy is going to mess up. So I need to get him a helper. Now, church, I want to be very clear this morning. This message is not a message about marriage. And, and most of the time when we read these verses, that's what we focus on. That's what you're used to being taught there. That when God created Adam, he realized that he needed a wife, and so he created a helper suitable for him. And I believe in marriage. I believe in the biblical view of marriage. I do, and, and I could preach on that. I have preached on that. But I, I, if you focus on that right there, you're going to miss the entire point of what I think God is trying to, to show us today. And so whether you are single or on the search, married or on the market, this message is for you today, okay? So whoever you are, whatever stage of life you're in, this is for you. It's not for the married couples in the room. But everyone listen to me. You were designed for networking and connectivity. There's no any other way around it. You were designed for networking and connectivity specifically to God's people. And I want to show you the value of that. It's interesting to me that humanity was the only thing that God created that from first appearance seemed incomplete. When you get to day one of creation, God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates day and night. And it's interesting, he created day and night even before he created the sun and the moon and the stars. And so he creates the heavens and the earth day and night. Second day, he creates the atmosphere that is around the earth. I believe that's where gravity kicks in. God created the atmosphere around the earth. On day three, the Bible says that he created the land and the sea, islands and vegetation. That's what God creates. On day four, he creates the, the stars and the planets. He creates the sun to give light during the day and moon to give light during the night. On day five, he creates marine life and birds of flight. On day six, God creates all the land-dwelling animals, and, and sometimes towards the end of the day, he decides that he wants to make man in his image. And so he creates man. And out of everything that God created, he did not look at his creation and view it as incomplete. He didn't look at the octopus and say, well, you've got eight limbs, and I think you need nine, so I'm going to create you another one. So God didn't change his plan after he made the octopus. God didn't look at the sun and say, you're not bright enough. And so I'm going to put another sun on the other side of the planet so that the whole thing is lit up at the same time. God didn't do that. He didn't change it. After he made it, it was good and 
and he left it alone. He didn't observe the elephant's trunk or the bill of a platypus. And yes, I've used, used platypus in one sermon. That's awesome. And, and he didn't look at the bill. He didn't look at the trunk of the elephant and think to himself, that's ridiculously abnormal. Let me rethink my design. I need to change these animals. That's not what he did. But for some reason, God looks at Adam And he realizes that there's a need for something more. When God creates Adam, there's something there that is just not quite complete. Genesis 2 and 18 says, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So I created this guy, but, but I... He, he's, he's not quite done yet. It's not good for him to be there by himself. I, I need to create a helper fit for him. That's, that's what I need to do. He wasn't complete by himself. God knew that he needed an adage to him. Some people may think, well, was this a mistake? It wasn't a mistake because throughout creation, days one through five, after God created everything on those days, he would get to the end of the day and he would say, that's good. That's good. But he gets to the end of day six after he creates man, and he looks at it and he says, it's very good. My creation of man is very good. Even before he, he creates the helper fit for him, he says it is very good. And so this leads me to believe that the way God created Adam was not a mistake that he created man, he created humanity for the, with the need within him for connectivity. We must have connectivity. Networking is part of how God created us. And so you're not complete by yourself. God created you with this need to connect with people in the kingdom of God. And so many people, church, miss out on this. So many people never realize. And so they'll just, they'll just come into the doors. They're here for church. They leave as soon as it's over. And they never have any other event where they connect with the people of God. But yet you were created for it. And there's a void in your life. You must connect with God's people. For each and every human life, God has ordained a network of believers to help them succeed, overcome, and walk in their faith. And so for some of you, the reason why you're struggling to succeed in life is because you haven't found that network of believers that God has it for you. You haven't connected with that. The reason why some of you continue to struggle with addictions and different things in your life that you just cannot overcome is because you have not yet connected the way God wants you to connect. And the reason why some of you have a hard time walking in your faith is because you have yet to find that network and that connectivity that God has ordained for your life. There is this word that appears 20 times in the original New Testament Greek that so accurately describes our need for connectivity. This, this Greek word is koinonia. Koinonia, we first Hear this word mentioned in God's word in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. And it, and it says this, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the koinonia, fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. In its simplest form, church, koinonia means fellowship, participation, contributing, sharing, and caring. And so if you want to be in koinonia, 
If you want to be in fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ, then there is participation involved. There is contributing involved. There is sharing and caring that are involved. And the people of God are to be in fellowship with one another. We are to to participate in each other's lives. We are to share with each other. We are to care for one another. Listen to 1 John 1 and 6. It says, if we say we have fellowship with him, now listen to what he says. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. In other words, our fellowship with him depends upon our fellowship with one another. And so many people miss this. There are people who have been Christians for so long, for years, decades even, and they do not understand that God has designed you in a way that you, you must connect. If you want to be complete in Christ, you must connect with other believers. You've got to find that connectivity. So many people miss this. This is the reason why I believe that the cross is both vertical and horizontal. Because we have to get this right and we have to get this right. We must be good in our relationship with our Father and we must be good in our relationship with each other. And if this isn't right, then this isn't right. And he says it right there, that that our fellowship with the Father, it depends on our fellowship with each other. So just slipping in and out of church, that doesn't cut it. You're called to, to, to participate. You're called to contribute. You're called to share and to care. And so during tough times, it's this selfish human nature of ours to retreat from the people that God has put in our lives. That's what we do. If we're not careful when, when hard times hit, we'll, we'll push away. We might even physically be standing in a group of people, but mentally we've checked out. And some people, uh, how many times have I, have I watched this happen? I have watched this happen even recently, that someone is going through a, a tough time in their life, and instead of running to God's people, they push away from God's people, and when that happens, the handwriting is on the wall. I can see it I, I, even before it happens. I know that this person is about to walk away from their relationship with Christ. I've watched it so many times. Why do we do this? It's because of guilt, shame, and blame. We feel guilty, and so we don't want to face the body of Christ. We don't want to have that face-to-face conversation. Or or maybe we let shame keep us away from from connecting. Or, Or maybe we try and blame the church for our sin. You know, I had someone recently that that because I couldn't drop everything what I was doing, they, they felt like I was the reason their marriage failed. Only because I couldn't see them that week. Let me tell you something. If your marriage depends on whether or not you can get an appointment with me that week, your marriage has been struggling for a long time. I believe, I believe in dropping everything for people. I really do. I, I, I do. There's moments in my life where I, just, I will drop everything I'm doing because it becomes a priority. But listen, don't start blaming other people. Don't blame the church. Don't blame other Christians because your life is falling apart. You've made decisions for a long time that has caused your life to fall apart. A lack of planning on your part doesn't constitute an emergency on my part. Oh, that's tough. Let's keep going. That did not go over well. 
So don't let guilt, shame, and blame keep you away from connecting with God's people. Some of us, we're connected as long as life is good, but at the moment that the rug is pulled out from under us, under us that's when we begin to push away. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 says, Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help, but someone who falls alone is in real trouble. I love how Solomon said that. He said, someone who falls alone, that person's in real trouble. So church, don't fall alone. The mistakes are going to happen. The attack is coming. And the last thing that you want for your life is to encounter that alone. Don't fall alone because the person that does, their life is in real trouble. But, but church, I have to warn you because there's this whole other group of people that are sitting here right now that needs to beware because the enemy of your soul, he also has people, places, and things that he too will put in your path. And it seems like the right thing at that moment. And you need to beware that Satan is scheming against your life and he will put people, places, and things in your path. There's this saying that, that you will hear quite a bit if you, if you were to attend Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and the saying is people, places, and things. It's used quite often. And it refers to the people that you hung out with when you were drinking or drugging or the places that you went when you were using and abusing. It, it can refer to the things that are associated with substance abuse. And so in, in recovery, keeping any of those people, those places, and those things in your life, it increases your risk of relapse. And so they, they preach this. Get rid of those people, those places, and those things. They're not good for you. Some of you need to realize that, that there are people, places, and things in your life that before you were a Christian, they had you going down one path, but at the moment that you begin to trust God with your life, you have to change the people, the places, and the things. Listen, I'm not asking you to, to put your headphones on and completely ignore them. That's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm saying there's some people in your life that have been a part of your life for a long time. Some of them are even extended family members that you need to keep them at arm's length because they do not have eternity in mind. And the Bible says the preaching of the cross is foolishness to the unbeliever. Until they're ready to receive, until they're ready to believe, until the Holy Spirit is pulling at their heart, they, they look at your life as a Christian as a waste of time. It is foolishness to the unbeliever. And so there's some people that, that they, they need to become the evangelistic project for your life. You spend time with them in order to witness to them, in order to be an example to them. See, so that's another problem that we have with people these days. When are we setting the example for others to follow? There's got to be some distinct difference between my life and an unbeliever's life, or else they will not be hungry for what I have. Taste and see that the Lord is good. They need to see what's happening in my life. They need to understand that there's been a change in my life. I can't live the same way that I did before Christ and expect to make a difference in their life after I have Christ. I am preaching way too good for you just to sit there like a knot on a log right now. You see... You were designed, you were designed for lasting, eternal relationships. When he looked at Adam and he said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a 
a helper fit for him. In that moment, we realize that there is a need for connectivity in our life, for networking with Christian brothers and sisters. And, and because of that, it leads to lasting, eternal relationships. Listen, when you find friends or acquaintances that are concerned about your eternity, those are the people that you know that God has put in your life. When you find people that are concerned about your eternity, those are the people that you know God has put them in my path. I need to pay attention to this relationship. But people that are only concerned with how you feel right now, they are not divine relationships. People that are only concerned with how you feel right now. Listen, if you've got somebody that, that they're giving you advice, that in the heat of the moment you lose your mind, you lose your cool, that is not a divine relationship. You need, you need to push that relationship aside. It, it needs to be at arm's length. You do not go to those people. That, is, that does not become your inner circle as a Christian. And there are some people that the enemy puts in your life that, that they are not concerned with eternity. They are only concerned with the here and now. And you have to be able to recognize that. You need the discernment of the Holy Spirit to guide you and to lead you because those people have nothing positive to give to your life. God is not as concerned with your temporary happiness as he is with your eternal home. God's not as concerned with what makes you happy right now as he is on spending eternity with you because this life is just a vapor anyway. Eternity is forever. And God is more concerned with that about your life than he is if you're happy in this moment. And so really quick, I'm going to give you three types of people that God will send to your life. This, I'm going to do this fairly quick. And sometimes, very seldom... They can be the same person, but they're not always the same person. The first person, the first group of people, they're just people that are there to entertain you. That sounds negative. It's not. God will put people in your life to entertain you. Laughter doeth good like a medicine. Amen? God will put people in your life to entertain you. Not everyone that God puts in your life is meant to bear the burdens of your life. You ever met someone that that all they do, every, every new person they meet, they just, they just throw up. They just vomit all their problems all over everybody they meet. It, they don't meet a stranger that they don't tell their stranger all the woes of their life. Listen to me. Be careful with that. Because God doesn't put everybody in your life that is able to endure that. Not everybody is able to, to handle that. They might be able to handle that for somebody else, but God hasn't called them to handle that for your life. So don't dump all of your baggage on everyone that you meet. Some people are there as... As, as simple as this sounds, and, and this, this goes against so many thoughts and theories that we have, but listen, some people are there, they're God-given to your life, but they're just there to spend a little time with you, laughing and eating together and just having a good time. And that's the extent of that relationship. These relationships, they are, they are lighthearted, they are easy, you need them, they are divine, but they're just not meant to be more than that. See them for what they are and realize God sent them there for a purpose. They'll get your mind off of the problem just for a moment because you're just having fun around them. I've got people like this in my life. I need people like this in my life. Thank you, God, for putting people like this in my life. But then there's the second group of people, people that God sends to encourage you. These relationships tend to get a little deeper. Have you ever met someone that they just knew how to say the right thing at the right time? And they're just good at it? They speak life into your life. They're constantly 
saying the right thing at the right time. When you're down, they lift you up. When you're struggling, their words, their words pull you up. In the book of Acts, we meet this guy by the name of Joseph. Now, this is not Joseph from the, the Old Testament, from Genesis chapter 37. This is not the, the coat of many colors, Joseph. This is not Joseph from the New Testament that was the, the father of Jesus. No, this is a new Joseph. This is Joseph that's introduced to us in, in the book of Acts. And the disciples, they created a nickname for him. They didn't call him by his given name of Joseph. They, they called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. This is the nickname that they gave him. So when they would see this guy Joseph walking up, they wouldn't refer to him as Joseph. They would say, oh, look, there's Barnabas. And what they're saying is, oh, check it out. There's son of encouragement. What's up, son of encouragement? Good to have you around. Man, I need you in my life today. Let's talk some, man. Let me tell you what I'm going through because I need you to lift me up. And every time that you read about Barnabas in Scripture, every time this guy shows up, he is always encouraging. There's something that he's doing, something he's saying, something that he's doing. Some way, somehow, he is encouraging the brothers and sisters in the early church when the disciples were afraid of Paul because Paul was, 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 had this track record of persecuting Christians, it was Saul and his name changed to Paul. When, when Paul has this encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, the disciples, they, they don't want anything to do with him. They think this is a trick. No, this guy just wants to kill us. This guy wants to throw us in jail. They want nothing to do with him until Barnabas speaks up. The son of encouragement speaks up and he says, listen, this is the real deal. You can trust Paul. And at that moment, just from his words of encouragement, they embraced Paul. Paul stayed with the disciples there in Jerusalem. And the Bible says that he moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. All because Barnabas, son of encouragement, was willing to speak up for him. Years later, years after Paul was discipled and Paul, Paul became an apostle in the church, uh, Paul and Barnabas, they would travel around and they would start new works, start new churches. They were church planners and, and they were leaders in the early church. And there, there came this moment when they were going to go on a mission. And, and Paul and Barnabas have a disagreement on this because there's this, this young man by the name of John Mark. And, and Paul does not want John Mark to go on this missionary journey because apparently he stood them up one time. He, he didn't go one time. He bailed on them. And so Paul does not want him to go. He's adamant about that. Barnabas speaks up because he's the encourager. He speaks up and he says, I still believe in this young man. And, and, and we witnessed the first church split that ever happened that we know of. And, and it was a small one. It only involves four people. Paul and his companion go one way and, and Barnabas and John Mark go the other way. And, and years later, years later, we realized the impact that Barnabas has on this young man by the name of John Mark, we, we realize exactly how encouraging he was because Paul realized the error of his ways years later and he acknowledged that Barnabas had been right not to give up on John Mark because he had been, and I quote, useful to Paul in ministry. Barnabas saw something in John Mark that no one else saw. He was an encourager. You need encouragers in your life. God will send them the third group of people that he sends are people that will invest in you. These people will give you the good, the bad, and the ugly. They will bless you with treasure, but they'll also bless you with truth, and you need both. You know, it's, it's easy to take the treasure from someone, isn't it? When someone wants to, to hand you the keys to a car, that's an easy treasure to take, isn't it? 
When someone wants to help you pay a bill, that's an easy treasure to take. But the moment that they want to speak truth into your life, that's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? And they, th these people will invest both into you. They'll be there to help you through the financial crisis, but they will also speak the truth to you in love. You know, one of the most fascinating friendships in the Bible was that of, of David and Jonathan. Jonathan was King Saul's son, and, and King Saul wanted to kill David. This is before David was king. And so Saul was very jealous of David and wanted to kill him, but God had divinely appointed David and Jonathan to be friends. It, it was a divine friendship. You ever had a divine friendship? Like you know these people are meant to be in your life. You know, we all know the stories of David the Great, but sometimes we fail to, to see the in, investor behind great men like that. There was a time when, when Jonathan gave David his robe and his sword at a very heated time when Jonathan's dad, King Saul, wanted to kill David. Jonathan gives him his robe and gives him his sword. And according to 1 Samuel 13 and 22, they're both very significant, but in, in 1 Samuel 13 and 22, we realize that there are only two swords in all of the land of Israel because the Phil, uh, Philistines, they've, they've not allowed any more blacksmith to go into Israel and they've killed others. And so Israel, fighting the Philistines, they only have two swords. King Saul has one and Jonathan has the other. And Jonathan gives David, his, his father's enemy, he gives him his sword. This could be the very sword that kills his father. But he trusts David enough to know that he'll do the right thing. The other thing that he gives him is the robe. This seems very insignificant, but it's very significant because Jonathan, by birth, was next in line to be the king of Israel. But he recognized an anointing that was on David, and he did not desire to get in God's way. And so here's what he decides to do. I'm going to give David my royal robe. In other words, he's saying, David, take my stature, take my throne. I give it up for you. I believe in you. I'm investing this power and authority in you. Church, God will send people in your life that will invest in you. They will give up their time, their talent, and their treasure just to see you succeed. But they will also speak the truth when you need it the most. See, David had this other guy in his life by the name of Nathan. It was a prophet by the name of Nathan. And, and Nathan was the one that, that after David had, had sinned against God, and, and Nathan looked at him and, and he called him. He, sa he said, man, I love you enough, king. I care enough about your eternity to let you know you are an adulterous murderer. That takes some guts to look at a king and say that. You are an adulterous murderer. The man is you. You are the man that has done this. And it leads David to repentance. Why? Because he could speak the truth and love to him. You need people that will invest their time, their talent, their treasure, and truth into your life. I believe it was Zig Ziglar that said, you can't soar with eagles if you surround yourself with turkeys. Doesn't work, church. Surround yourself with people that have eternity in mind. I want to very very reluctantly share something with you that up until first service I had not shared publicly at all. There were only a handful of people that knew anything about this. But I feel like God wants me to share this today. And it's taken me a lot of courage to get to this point. About a year ago, 
I found myself in one of the most darkest and loneliest places I've ever been mentally. There were some warning signs leading up to it. Some of you will remember two and a half, three years ago, I felt like there was this moment where I just went through this, this spiritual drought in my life. And I just kept going through the motions and knowing that, that God would, would speak and God would lead me. And, um, but a year ago, I found my, myself at a very, very dark place. And the enemy began messing with my mind because he didn't, he didn't want me to tell anybody because the enemy has a way of isolating us. And I could show up. And I could be the pastor here on stage publicly. But inside, the enemy was destroying me. And I was afraid to say anything to anyone. Who wants to follow a pastor that's got some mental stuff going on? It was at a, a time when we had been through some tough staff transitions. I had been second-guessing my ability to even hire the right people. We were trying our best to secure a construction loan and get this building up off the ground and finalize plans. And I just knew that the timing was not right for me to be dealing with anxiety. And I'll tell you this. I have done counseling for 20 years, 20 plus years. I know all the right things to say to people. I can look at you in your face and tell you what God's Word says. I can look at you in your face and tell you what needs to happen. I'm thankful that God's Word does not go forth and return void, that even in the middle of my despair and going through the motions, that God still uses that. But during that time, if you came to me, I was hiding. I was hiding in a dark place. Because I started having these anxiety attacks. And I'm that guy that I'll say the right thing to your face. But then you walk out of the door. And if you're battling depression or anxiety in certain situations, I would be that guy that would be like, in my mind, I wouldn't say it out loud, get over it. You've thought that before. Get over it. It's a mind thing. Get over it. It's easy enough to say until you're the one battling the anxiety. And I found myself in this place that I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to come out of it. Hiding it from everybody in my life, all of you. Hiding it from my family. And there were these moments where the anxiety would take over. And I'm, I'm calling it anxiety. I, I was never diagnosed. I want to make that clear. Because there's so many of you in the medical business, medical field. Word gets out. Who's going to have confidence in a pastor having anxiety attacks? And so I'm self-diagnosed. I had anxiety. And these attacks would come on, and they were so real. I mean, just, just devastatingly real, just crippling. Most of the time, I would be by myself. Or it was 
I was in a place where I could excuse myself from the room and wait till it eased off before I could come back into a room. And, and I, I was just safe in, in being able to hide it in ways like that. Until one Wednesday night. And I was back backstage on a Wednesday night. And um, I'm telling you, man, the enemy just messes with you. If you come on Wednesday nights, you'll know that I don't teach from the stage. I bring this podium and I put it here on the floor. And I teach from the floor level. And I was backstage and it hits me. And it was like the worst time. It was just like five minutes before service. And just everything. I mean, my heart is pounding out of my chest. I feel like I'm about to have a heart attack. And if you know me, you know that I like starting on time. Bible study starts at 7. I've got to start on time. That's why we have countdown. That way everybody on that stage knows we start at the end of that countdown. Nobody can be late. And I forced myself to stand up and walk from that back room down this ramp. And every step that I took closer to that podium, my heart was beating so much faster. I'm, I'm backstage checking my pulse. I'm telling you, I, was, I, thought, I thought this is it. I'm, I'm going to die in front of everybody. But pride will keep you in the dark. Pride will keep you from coming clean with anyone. And I came right here, and for the first 15 minutes, I cannot even tell you what I said. Man, if you were here that night, you probably thought I was losing my mind. I have no idea how I even made it through that first 15 minutes. I'm sitting here the whole time thinking, I'm about to drop dead. I'm about to drop dead. This is, this is, this is about to take me out. And I just... But man, it shows you the power of God's word. Because as I taught God's word, this peace and this calm came upon me. And for the last 35, 40 minutes, I was good. I left after service that night and I went home. And I'm standing at my dresser and I'm scared to death because whatever just happened to me that's been happening. I, I honestly, at one time, I thought it was Coke Icy's. I thought every time I drink a Coke Icy, my heart starts pounding and, and this anxiety starts building. So I stopped drinking Coke Icy's. It wasn't the Coke Icy's. I got home that night and I'm scared to death. I was, I'm scared. This, I mean, I'm thinking... There's no way I'm going to be able to pastor this church and especially lead them through a building program. There's no possible way. The enemy was making me keep it all inside because I wanted you to be confident in me. And I'm standing there taking off my watch at my dresser and I look over and my wife is standing there and she looks at me and she has no idea. I said, I got to tell you something. I can't imagine what went through her mind. I mean, she's probably like thinking the worst. But in my mind, it was the worst. And I began to tell her all the things that I've been feeling for the past five or six months and how these anxiety attacks were hitting me. I told her about what happened just an hour earlier, an hour and a half earlier, and how I was trying to teach and 
and how my heart was about to pound out of my chest and I just thought I was dying and all that. And my wife did what, what a godly spouse does. She cried. She prayed for me. The next Tuesday night, we had an administrative council meeting and the enemy was, was telling me, don't tell them, don't tell them, don't tell them. They won't think that you're able to lead this church, don't tell them. And I told them. I told the administrative council everything that I'd been going through and the feelings and the thoughts and the things I couldn't explain. And those men gathered around me and laid their hands on me and began to pray. The next day I was in the office and I asked Andrew, Pastor Andrew, to come to my office. I had him shut the door behind him and I looked at him and I said, Andrew, you've got to know what's going on because if something happens to me, you're next in line, man. You've got to be ready. And I shared with Pastor Andrew what I'd been going through. Let me tell you something. After I told my wife, the administrative council, and Pastor Andrew, every one of those feelings left my body. It was in the moment that I made it known to my network, to the people I knew that would pray for me, that I could trust. You know, the enemy tried to tell me. Listen, listen to what he tried to tell me. Go ahead, you make it known. Andrew's waiting in the wings. He'll be right there ready to pick it up, and you will no longer be the pastor of that church. Do you know how much of a lie that is? Andrew's the most trustworthy man I know. At the moment I let it out there, I conquered the enemy. God's put us in network with one another so that we don't have to bear our burdens alone. Scripture says that we are to bear one another's burdens. When you exercise that right that you have as a Christian, as a God-fearing believer, when you exercise the plan that He has for your life, it brings security in knowing they're praying for me. They're lifting me up. It brings the encouraging words. I can't, I can't tell you how many of the council members just begin texting me daily, every other day, every week, just sending me words of encouragement. It adds accountability to your life. And these are the things that the enemy tries to convince us that if we make it known, if we share our problems, if, if we share our weaknesses, then they're going to judge us. No, we don't judge. We're here because God put us in the body of Christ together. And so <clears throat> a hand can't look at the foot and say, I want to discard of you. I don't. I don't need you. No, we're part of the body. The eye can't say to the ear, I don't need you anymore. No. Church, you've got to understand that God puts people in your life for a purpose. And the enemy is trying his best to get you on an island by yourself where, where, where you think you can handle this alone and no one needs to know. No, no. Some of you are finding relief right now today because you're going to walk out of here and you're going to connect with someone, a believer, and you're going to tell them what's going on in your life.
The enemy is a liar. The enemy is a liar. And he's convinced you time and time. He convinced me. He convinced me that I couldn't tell anyone. And at the moment I did, deliverance came. He's going to do the same for you. Thank you for listening to the podcast of DCC. For service times and directions, log on to www.destinycommunitychurch.org. Thanks again for listening.